Welcome. I'm Lori Lee Binstock, and this is a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. Thank you for joining us for a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast on Mental Health News Radio Network. This podcast is also available wherever you get your podcasts, but I do suggest checking out Mental Health News Radio Network to find all your podcasts related to mental health. Today's guest is Merle Yost. Merle is a psychotherapist, author of six books, including his latest, Facing the Truth of Your Life. He has been a private practice therapist for over 30 years and specializes in trauma, men sexually abused as children, and bi and gay heterosexual married men. After growing up in a cult and being sexually abused as a child, his healing journey has led him to help others and claim their power and their lives. Merle, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, absolutely. Uh, first, I want to hear a little bit about your story um, and kind of how you got into this work. It was never the plan. <laughs> it never is. It never is. <laughs> uh, my mother programmed me to be a doctor and a uh, singer. I actually was a music major originally in college because uh, I didn't really want to be a doctor. Um, and when I bombed out of that because I couldn't focus well enough, I was really too dissociated. I didn't really understand that until later. And when I went into therapy and figured out that uh, I had been pretty horrifically sexually abused, and that was really the root of all of the dissociation, which was really extensive. So I had uh, mostly occluded memory, repressed memories. Uh, and so it was actually during a training session for learning how to do EMDR mm. that uh, it was the very first training session and doing and this is back in about 1993, ancient wow. history. Uh, with Francine Shapiro. This was uh, with the founder of EMDR. And uh, they told us that we were going to do our first practice session on it. And they wanted to pick something simple that wasn't going to cause any big drama or problems. And so I'd always had this long phobia of tall buildings. I look up at a tall building and just about pass out. It just kill me. And so, so we'll try this. Then about 30 seconds into doing the EMDR, uh, all of a sudden my head went back, a cock went down my throat and I was gone. I was totally dissociated. And it took me a long time to get back. So that was the beginning of opening up what had happened and, and starting to deal with the aftermath of that. So it literally changed my life. Uh, and so I was already a therapist at that point, but I had gone into therapy there's a story i tell about my very first therapy session uh because i was clearly a mess and one of my roommates at the time when i was in college said you need therapy <laughs> uh, which i did not even understand how badly i needed therapy so i saw this really wonderful therapist for several years when the very first session we're sitting there and she says you seem really anxious are you afraid of me and i said no she said what are you afraid of i said what's inside of me so on some level, I understood there was a lot going on there that I didn't understand or how to deal with. And so my honesty about that was really the beginning of healing. And uh, uh, the first of three therapists that I worked with over the course of my time and 
I put in like, I don't know, roughly 20 years of therapy. <laughs> so I was really determined to root that out. It was with the growing up in the situation I did in the cult and with the sexual abuse and all of the other stuff that went with that, it, it was a really pretty awful childhood. So, but mm. in the course of doing therapy, I realized that this was where my interests lie. This is it. As I was watching myself heal, this was what was my passion. And, and I was deep in the new age movement at that point. And so it was all about self-growth and so forth. So it just naturally came together. It gave me an outlet to actually uh, take what I've learned and learn a lot more and make it useful. Wow. You know, I, I love what you said when you were when you were honest with yourself, because I think that's where most people it's it, it's kind of what blocks people from actually healing because they can't be honest with themselves. I couldn't be honest with myself for 20 years. It was <laughs> it was really difficult. And then when I was kind of forced to look at at myself, it was like that was when all the healing and growth and and everything happened. Right. Um did you when you when you said these your memories were repressed of the sexual abuse what did you was it always in the back of your mind that you just tried to push away or it was one of those things that you just completely it, forgot it was completely blocked out of mm. one of the best ways to create uh, uh occluded memories or amnesia is to suffocate someone and i was this tiny little nine-year-old little boy with this mm. large cock going down my throat and I couldn't breathe. And so I was suffocating. Wow. Uh, it was the beginning of chronic sleeplessness. I'd stay up all night in my bed uh, trying to stay safe. And because I'd repressed the memory, I didn't know why I was doing this, but I just couldn't sleep. And so years of chronic insomnia and it really screwed up my life on so many levels, I can't tell you. So, Wow. And, and and I think it's it's really interesting about your mom. She wanted you to be a doctor. That wasn't where you're supposed to. I you know that was that was also where my parents were. My parents said you're going to be a doctor, and I just <laughs> remember thinking like, I'm I I I don't I can't. There's like I there there's no interest in me being a doctor for me to be a doctor. And like any other thing, was just no. Like, no, I, maybe, maybe I could do this. No, I don't think so. As if it were their decision. Um, well, yeah, that, that's so interesting that parents are so, can be so intrusive and in trying to shape their children, making them being what they want them to be as opposed to being who they are. Right. And that is, of course, the definition of love is, is accepting someone for who they are. And so a parent is telling you if they're trying to control you, that we'll only love you if you become what I want you to become and if you be the way I want you to become. And that's how they control and manipulate. And yeah. that's all too common in all too many families. So if you do what I want you to do, I love you. If you don't, then I don't love you anymore. So. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. That's about right. That's where I was. And then yeah. I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do for the longest time. <laughs> because well, it's yeah. like, do I do what I want to do or do I do what they said I, I should do, but I don't want to do that. Yeah, I went into business and was very successful, uh, but it, in some ways it was so easy. It was effortless for me to, because uh, are you familiar with the Enneagram by any chance? Mm -mm. It's, a very, it's a very good characterological personality typing system. Ah, mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, it, it's a really great description of me <laughs> when <laughs> you pull out that type. 
But so I learned it as part of my graduate program, and it's really an effective, quick way to assess personality structure and how to interact with a person. If you understand what their number is, because there's nine different types, it tells you how they're going to interact with you and how they're going to look toward uh, making contact with you. It's really fabulous. But anyway, um, so my structure was I, my character structure is it's always about the truth. Mm -hmm. Which is the one thing my parents did not want me to know <laughs> about much anything as it turned out. Uh, but so I was, and I could smell when somebody wasn't telling you the truth. And so I would go after it. And so uh, it, it was just, so business in some ways was really easy. It was so straightforward, cut and dry in a way. Uh, and being a manager, I could see people and I uh, honored them. And I always had these really good employees at Constant. But my bosses would say, how do you have such good employees because I'm good at picking people. <laughs> nice. Yes. Changes you can read people. You're you're yeah. more empathetic. You 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 right? Because you're you've been in survival mode for so long. It's like you are always aware of your environment and who's yes. around you. So that that yeah. that is there that that's a great way to use the trauma that you experienced. Um Did the best I could. <laughs> Right. We all try to, you know, I want to talk about boundaries. You know, I briefly um, mentioned about, you know, chatting about boundaries. I want to know what your thoughts are about boundaries, because you have you you have or you had a whole workshop focused on boundaries. Is that correct? Well, I still do. I've been oh. doing them for years. They were live workshops initially uh, doing a full day in person, one that was life changing to people. But then COVID hit. Mm, COVID. <laughs> COVID changed everything. And then, then I went into an online three-hour version. It wasn't nearly as satisfying because it couldn't go into the same depth. And so eventually I created a seven-step workshop called Seven Steps to Powerful Boundaries Workshop, which teach pe teaches people what boundaries really are, how they really work, and how to make them work for you. Mm. Uh, and um, the... So I'll I'll do a short lecture on boundaries here, if that's yes, okay. please. No, I I I I find it fascinating. Yes, the essence of boundaries is where you stop and they start. It's really that simple. That is the boundary. Unfortunately, way too much of our socialization from our families, in particular, it's about merging. It's about feeling your feelings and being in your stuff, and them being in. Uh, you're being in their stuff and them being in your stuff. And that's just wrong on every level. <laughs> <laughs> the only, only time that is acceptable is when a baby is under 18 months of age. Mm. You have to be merged with the baby in order to track what's going on with them because they can't tell you. Right. And then 18 months to three years of age, you start to withdraw. And at three years of age, you need to be completely out of there because if you're still in there, you're intruding upon the development of their sense of self. Mm -hmm. And the way you build a sense of self is back through the continual reflection of the parent of your external experience. You eventually in internalize that and it goes, oh, this is me. <laughs> it's amazing how that works. And so... Um, we don't understand because of our socialization that, that merging is bad. We want to walk in and just suck up everything like a vacuum cleaner, and then we have to try and get rid of it. And it's so much better if you don't take it up in the beginning. And there's a, and it's much easier to know what's going on uh, without absorbing. Uh, 
I'll, I'll tell this short story. I tell this in the workshop. This is that I worked out with personal trainers a lot. And I walked into the gym one morning and I saw my trainer I said, good morning. I said, how are you? He said, great. And I said, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> His response was goddamn psychic psychotherapist. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, but I knew, I knew he was actually in really bad shape at the time. I could tell, I just knew. So the way we, we're all made up of energy. We're all made mm -hmm. of atoms. And so once you understand that we're just in this energetic bubble, each one of us, and so the fantasy is that those bubbles merge and two shall become as one. Well, that means you're completely lost in their stuff, they're lost in your stuff, and you're taking on everything that they have, and that's just really bad. So once you learn how to stay inside of your bubble and make contact with your bubble, not merge with it, make contact, then when you get contact, you're going to know everything that's going on inside of there without absorbing it. Mm. I need to know more. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I otherwise, if I didn't, if I absorbed all of my client stuff, I'd be dead at the end of the day. And mm -hmm. when therapists learned how to do this, it changed their lives and their practice because they suddenly had energy to go home and be with their families and not be exhausted and trying to figure out how to get rid of all this crap that they absorbed over the day. So it's a so the core of what I teach is energetic boundaries, how these bubbles work, how to make contact without absorbing, how to read what's going on inside of their bubble so that you know what's going on, what you choose to interact with or not. We do it unconsciously. We go to a restaurant or a, a, a place and it feels bad to us on some level. So we just leave because it doesn't feel right. But it's, so the same thing works with people. <laughs> but But people don't really have the the vocabulary to understand how this interacts. And that's what the workshop gives them this vocabulary over the seven steps. And so, the, and the most basic part of boundaries is what I call the dance of intimacy. Our families teach us how to be in connection with other people. We learn from our dad how to be in relationship with men. We learn from our mom how to be in relationship with women. And so, and then we just take that out the world and assume this is how it's going to be everywhere. <laughs> and we get surprised that it's not, but, uh, so we have to unlearn that dance and we have mm. to learn how to stay inside our bubble and stay uh, present with us and our experience of being in the world and, and checking in what's going on around us and reading it. But because we take our dance of intimacy to our workplaces and turn our bosses into our parents and <laughs> we work, try to work out any unfinished business with them. We marry one of our parents, usually mm -hmm. the one we have the most stuff with. Because <laughs> we really want to work this out in our marriage. That's yeah, so exciting. <laughs> so that's a wrong way to do it. <laughs> yep. So I'm trying, I'm offering an alternative to that via my seven steps to powerful values. I'm just curious, are you willing to share what are the seven steps? Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. uh, step one is going back to your childhood looked at looking at those boundaries that you learned from them and what you learned from your family about it was like to be in relationship and so forth. And uh, if someone, for example, if someone's primary method of teaching or of, of parenting you is shaming and humiliation, then you go out into the world, look for other people are going to shame and humiliate you because that's what your definition of intimacy and contact is. Yeah, <laughs> yep, that's about right. That's, that's, your, that's where you're comfortable. Right. It's, well, it's just the dance of intimacy, you know, and then you look for that partner that's going to humiliate you and go, yes, I'm home. <laughs> oh, goodness. So what you have to get conscious about is what's going on before you can actually do something about it. 
Step two is simply a very basic, it's, it's the most academic piece of the whole workshop, right? You just go through like the 15 major boundaries, what they are and how they work. So that you have, and a simple example of that is of in different cultural boundaries, like how you say hello in one culture and greet someone could get completely different in another culture. Mm -hmm. And so understand that's just it's another boundary. And there's all these other boundaries, religion to sex to to relationships, all these things that you really have to understand. And at least having a concept of that makes it easier when you get to these other, how do you use the energetic boundaries? Step three is an introduction, the very basic introduction to energetic boundaries and how this works, this energy works and how to manipulate it. Step four is a guilt-free no. It tells you how to actually say no and feel good about it. Will you actually <laughs> help people figure that out? Oh, yes. And it's the <laughs> most intense. It's the longest section of the workshop. And I can imagine. That's because it's a deep dive into guilt and shame. Mm. Not looking guilt and shame the same way by the time it's over. It'll completely change your relationship to it. <laughs> wow. So step five is the is the the full on energetic boundaries. Uh, there's what you get all the bells and whistles and the tools to go with that. Uh, step six is deepening into more tools and teach you how to use your clairvoyance, your intuition, and introception. These other tools and how different energies play into this. And then step seven is integrating all of these pieces together so you have the whole package. Wow. <laughs> there, there, that's a lot. That's, that's, that's ambitious. It, <laughs> I'm it, like thinking, right. I'm like, gosh, I, so there's, there's a lot to unpack there. There is. It took me two years to create it. Uh, and uh, a lot of recording, a lot of re-recording, uh, a lot of rewriting. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's, 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 I offer CEs for therapists and some other professions. And so it's slated at 24 hours of work. And that's yeah. what I sort of consider what's most people probably on average to do it. And some people are taking longer because they want to dig deeper into the sections and really go into it. It's, I ask a lot of really interesting questions and we're, we have a 95 page workbook that goes with this. It's in a PDF form. It takes you through the whole thing. So. Wow. I, you know, I do like that. The first one is having to like go back into your childhood mm -hmm. and, and, and figure out how you were programmed and basically yes. unprogram all of it. If you, you, you have to look at the programming before you can undo it. <laughs> yeah. It, it's interesting. There's so many people who are just like, you know, whatever happened to me in my childhood, whatever ha happened to me then that doesn't affect me now. I'm like, it affects everything yeah. you do now. I, I think I was, I read somewhere, uh, a neuro neuroscientist, said that like 95 percent of your behaviors is based on past experiences or in your subconscious yes and that's all based upon childhood and what you learn from your parents because they taught you how the world works and you assume that they and you our parents are gods they know everything until mm -hmm. they <laughs> yeah and you're just like oh and it's very disappointing when you realize that they're not Oh, um, yeah, it's very rude awakening, but useful and necessary if you're going to become a, an individual and have your own life. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, you one of the things you specialize in is, you know, men sexually abuses children. Um, do you do you do the same kind of work with that or do you do you, you know, do you focus on EMDR and then? Well, and then... Uh, ultimately, we'll do EMDR. I mean, there's mm -hmm. no better trauma tool out there as far as I'm concerned. And, I... and 
people who know what they're doing. It just can, I've cleared so many rapes for women in a single session. It's just gone. And suddenly they're able to be in a relationship. I've seen so many of them get married a year later because all of a sudden they were available to be there in a way that they weren't before. So I actually trauma specialist, I go, but I have those specialties, but I, when people had really awful childhoods or all these horrendous rapes and trauma, uh, it's, I often know the, I'm the person often that gets there too. So like, oh, you can clean this up. You yes. clean this up. <laughs> fix this. Uh, I'm not afraid of it. And it's because right. I'm through it. So there's a fearlessness in me and a confidence in me, I think, that holds that container, knowing that that they can come out the other side of this and be a whole person. That's uh, very true. Yeah. And so that's really essential uh, that I have. And that's where my doing my own healing makes me a better therapist because I know what this means to go through this. It's, there's no um, guesswork on my part in that particular piece. I know the pain that's involved and I also know it's survivable. Yeah. And I, and I can imagine whenever, you know, someone is stuck on a piece, you can, you, you're, you're more relatable to them and then they can trust you more in, in that sense. Um, well, they can feel it. I mean, so, so many men say, you really understand. <laughs> I said, yeah. I, and that's without knowing my story. They just, they just, they could tell that I really knew what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, I was sexually abused as a child by my father. Um, <laughs> and I've done a lot of, of, of work. Uh, and I actually, it, it all started with EMDR, you know, I, I, I I mean, there was a lot of other stuff. It was like that kind of rolled into other traumas and more traumas. And... One trauma. <laughs> <laughs> I know, there, there really isn't. No. Um, but the EMDR is what I felt kind of put out the fire because I couldn't even talk about it. And it was the EMDR that actually helped me say it out loud. You know, um, I've, I've spoken about this in my other podcast. You know, I, I, I've done a lot in in psychedelics in psychedelic assisted therapy and, and that has helped me tremendously but i really do feel like it was the emdr that kind of really opened me up to being able to recognize it and and be honest with myself um that 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 this is actually what had happened you know going back you know trying to be honest with yourself really goes a long way in in the healing process to just start your healing process it's impossible to heal without being honest with yourself yeah yes otherwise you're just playing all these mind games and avoidance and and wasting your time and sometimes you have to go through that to get there but but you ultimately you have to be honest about your life and who you are and what happened to you then you can do something about it yeah yeah uh, I, you know, I also, I also read that you do work with, with, um, bi and gay heterosexually married men. Yes. You know, I haven't talked about that at all on my podcast. And, and I, I think that's really interesting because I feel like, you know, there are more, more people who are dealing with that than we, we know. Well, okay. So let me do just a bit on that. Mm -hmm. The statistics are something like one in six boys and one in three girls are sexually abused. That's grossly nonsense. Uh, and there's growing evidence and research showing that boys are probably sexually abused more than girls mm. uh, because girls are generally protected in some form. The boys are just sent out to the world and say, take care of yourself. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. And so they get into all these situations and they don't come home and tell mom that I just got forced to give 
uh, head to this guy or, or, or these other myriad of possibilities that happen. Some of them even think they're lucky in the moment. And I can't tell mm-hmm. you that uh, like young men who are sexually abused by female school teachers, which yeah. is so common. I can't tell you, but they consider themselves lucky. But the damage done to them, because they, a child's brain is developing. And so an adult can generate a lot more sexual energy and juice. And so consequently, if they're pouring that into that child, it's like plugging a 110 outlet into, or 110 plug-in into a 220 outlet, and it blows up. And so you're psychosexually stuck at the age of the abuse until such time as the abuse is cleared. Yeah. So that causes sexual compulsivity. And once you go back and clean up the trauma, all of a sudden the compulsivity goes away. So all this nonsense about sexual addiction is just, is we're shaming people about their sexuality when they're trauma survivors. Wow. You know, that is so fascinating. Um, just because I feel like I've heard this story before, you know, you know, someone was abused by an older woman and everyone was like, oh yeah, that's amazing. Lucky you, you know, and, and then they had to feel like they needed to take that in as, Oh, yeah. Lucky me. I guess I should be grateful or thankful this happened to me. But I'd like to actually talk about what does that you know, like you said, I I mean, I think it's fascinating that you mentioned the the sexual addiction part to that, because I feel like that's so relevant. But I I would like you to expand on that a little bit more, because I'm just now my mind's a little blown. (laughs) Well, for instance, I had a a client uh, many years ago that uh, when he was around, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember his exact age, somewhere between nine and 12. He was at the public pool. He's a gay little boy. He didn't really know it at the time. Uh, and uh, this 21-year-old-ish guy decides to masturbate in front of him in the locker room. And he was completely overwhelmed by the energy coming toward him. And he was stimulated. And so he then spent the next 20, 30 years going from bathroom to bathroom, recreating that experience because he was unconsciously trying to resolve it. But mm-hmm. it was also what, since it was his first sexual experience, it was his, his programming to what erotic energy was. Mm-hmm. And so he was looking for that over and over and over again. And so a corollary to the bi and gay heterosexually married men, most of them were sexually abused as children. And so, and so that creates this denial in them. I wouldn't be having these other feelings if that hadn't happened to me. Interesting. And so they've got this whole denial going. And so, and sometimes they're just bisexual, but, but often the ones who are in trouble are the ones that, that were sexually abused and they're trying to manage all this unsuccessfully. So uh, back to the trauma. So that's why and exposure to porn can do the same thing. If uh, these where kids are getting into porn much too early, and boys in particular are sneaking around getting the magazines, it's not so much magazines so since it's all available online. And mm-hmm. so again, they're getting hyper-stimulated with all this energy before they're psychologically and physiologically ready to handle that level of stimulation without sufficient education about what it is they're seeing and what they're experiencing. So mm-hmm. they think that kind of overwhelm is what they're looking for in a sexual experience. They're out on the search for that constant because that's what programmed from the atmosphere 
your first experience sets up your whole ex experience of sexuality. And like you and I, we had to work through that in order to get to our sexuality. <laughs> mm, overt yeah. us, but it's not overt to these people because they think that's just normal. It's just what happened. It's not. Right. And, and then we just slap sexual addiction. Right. On top of it and shame and humiliate them and say you're you're sick and because you have this lifelong illness that you can never get over. But they I had so many guys go through SLIA as well. Come to me. I did the EMDR on their sexual history and they stopped being sexually compulsive. It just completely changes their life. So, so I'm furious at these people who are shaming people about their sexuality. It just pisses me off. <laughs> no, I judge. I don't blame you. But then that that I mean, so EMDR is a great would be a great if if, if this if, let's say there is a person who's like who let's say they think you know yeah no I wasn't sexually abused it I wanted it it was in a I don't want to say to you a babysitter or something common common, common very common. common. <laughs> oh my God, the stories I could tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I mean, how do they seek help? And I guess it's them being honest with themselves, but what if they don't know to be honest with themselves? Well, they because... don't. Not educating people about it. So we're not giving people real sexual education. Mm. So you're getting real sexual education, then you should cover this. Well, if you've been exposed to this for sexual energy early in your life, these are the possible things that could happen as a result of that. No. that's how they find out or should find out. But no, we barely give them the birds and the bees in terms of, of the very basic information. And certainly nothing to, that explains all this energy and what's going on and how it works. It's like, if you're just supposed to automatically know, it's like, uh, no. <laughs> wow. But yeah. We're setting kids up to be abused. We just are. I mean, I uh, remember another guy who a uh, very straight guy, uh, who uh, uh, worked for this gay guy and ended up getting a blowjob from him. And it completely confused him because he it was so pleasurable to him. He says, well, if I'm straight, how could this have been so pleasurable for me? Because it's simply a pleasurable act. <laughs> right, right. So it took him a long time to untangle that because he was clearly straight, but he had this all this trauma going on around that because he didn't know how to resolve that. He, I shouldn't feel pleasure from something. Well, I can tell you straight guys have sex with gay guys all the time. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they're really clear they're straight because their emotions aren't going to, they're not going to fall in love with the guy, but they're going to enjoy the pleasure from it. And they're just there for the pleasure. Right. And then that, that's that there's a lot to separate there. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that we don't, everything feels so integrated, but except where it, it actually matters, like when it comes to trauma and behavior. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm I'm getting really deep in the weeds here with you a little bit, but I hope that's okay. There's just this it's such a complicated topic. And we make we try and pretend sex is so simple. <laughs> it's not. <Right. laughs> Even in a relationship. One of my favorite things I bitch about in the workshop is merging, <laughs> is that we get told that couples, the two shall become as one. And you merge into this big, big glom. It's a great way to kill sex. <laughs> Sex happens at the contact boundary. If you're merged, you're killing the excitement that's happening. Mm. And you don't, and merger is bad. As I said, the only time merger is good is with that baby. Because if you do it in the relationship, it's it's going to harm the relationship and kill it in one form or another. Yeah, you know, you're right. 
I'm just thinking like, you know, my husband and I, it took a lot of us having to kind of deal with our own traumas for us to begin to like grow and evolve together. I think that's that, you know, it was, it was like you, for me, you know, as someone who's a trauma survivor and who was putting my own shit on my husband, it was very much like, no, you need to know this about me. This is, you need to feel how I feel when you're right. No, that was, that was where everything went wrong. Yes, of course. course. (laughs) And I didn't even know it. And trauma survivors, sexual abuse survivors usually marry sexual abuse survivors. Hmm. And I also don't like sexual abuse survivor because I don't, I think it's saying that you never recover. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I haven't come up with a better word. Uh, we were a sexual abuse victim, but that we don't have to stay a victim. Right. Right. I think that's why my, I have my podcast, the Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. Right. But it's, I it's, feel like we're thriving. Never recover. It's a whole 12 step model is that you are this and you're going to be this forever. Yeah. And I have a problem with that. So, <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I agree. I think that, you know, I, I mean, for the longest time, I, I mean, I didn't tell anybody about what had happened to me. I didn't even, every time the, the idea came into my head or the thought of it came into my head, I was just like pushing it down further and further until it just, exploded um but it was really you know it was it it was really hard and you know i i never thought that i could be thriving like that wasn't even that was a thriving a trauma survivor thriver is 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 a oh exactly well we don't have any model for recovery in our society for for healing and so and there are therapists that don't have any idea how to deal with this because it triggers their own stuff because they've never done their own work. So <laughs> that's the problem. That's the problem that I feel like we're, we're all seeing is, you know, I think there's so much truth and so much healing to be done for, by with somebody who has gone through it. Like you were saying, people trust you. They feel the energy. They feel like they can heal just by learning and working with you. And I think that's so important. Well, I think a therapist's job ultimately is to offer unconditional love. Mm. That to be there with this person and hold them in the most loving way possible, not judging them, but yet encouraging them to face their pain and to walk through that dark night so they can come out into the light. Yeah. You know, therapists having done their work to make that happen. So this is, this is true. This is true. You know, I, I was in therapy for 20 years, mm. um, just traditional therapy, though. Like I didn't, you know, I, I know you say you, you, you um, specialize in, in trauma. And I feel like there's a difference between, the, you know, just traditional like talk therapy. And, you know, I, I do therapy with an internal family systems therapist where, you know, I really dive deep into my own stuff. Um, but I did waste a good 20 years just talking about what had happened to me within the last week. And then, yeah, you know, uh, I, I, the, to the core of what's going on. So when I see a client, I have a whole set of homework they have to do. Hmm. <laughs> And so I have a big picture of what's going on and where the traumas are because I, I do it in such a way that like one of the things I do that annoys them to no end <laughs> is that <laughs> I require them to 
write a timeline of their life. Mm. And for each year of their life, for as far back as they can remember, they have to write one to three things that take them back to being that age. I lived on Washington Street, moved to Chicago, rape. I mean, they, they tell me all of these things that happened. They didn't, they don't even realize sometimes are traumas. And so it just, and so it just comes out. So I have a real uh, map of really how they're put together. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, I, I had to do that one because I went into a treatment center for about 31 days and that was one of my homework. That was the thing I had to do. One of the first things I had to do and I had to explore that. And I was like, uh, this is not so fun. Weird. No, it's not fun. Nothing. But therapy is no fun. fun. <laughs> it's healing or can it's be. Healing. Not fun. Yes, it was very healing. It was really. It was hard work. It's hard work. You know, you, you, you have to get into the place where you know you can you can see the ugly stuff that's happened, and be able to understand you know how to move through it and and. You know, well, you have to rearrange the blocks. Rearrange the blocks. I like that formed this whole block house growing up in our world and then we realized that this is not real <laughs> and we're going to redo this in order to have a, uh, our own life and to have and to be real in the world and, and be able to be available to other people especially our partners and children mm-hmm. so. wow. well merle is there is there anything that that you know that we didn't talk about that you feel is important for this audience to hear? Well, this let's keep going for hours. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, The other side is worth the price of giving. Mm. I mean, it doesn't look like it when you're in the middle of all this pain and you're overwhelmed by all the stuff. But the truth is that you can stay in misery, and a lot of people do because they know their misery. They're comfortable with their misery right, exactly. and around a long time and 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 shaking the tree and seeing what falls out. It seems like a really scary idea. And in the moment, it is. Like as I told my therapist, I could feel there was something inside of me. I didn't know what it was, but I was willing to face that, whatever it was, but again, my whole personality is about facing the truth and and just getting to the truth. Uh, hence the title of my last book, Facing the Truth of Your Life. And it's it's really a romp through your life, actually. I really bring up a whole lot of stuff. And I take on a lot of sacred cows. I don't, I don't believe in self-love. I think there's a better path. I don't believe in forgiveness. I think there's a much better path, <laughs> path to that. Uh, but these are all these sacred cows we have in our society that are supposed to make everything better. I mean, how many people have told you a wife who said they forgave this person? They came to you and say, I didn't really forgive them. I'm really lying. <laughs> because it's, it's because it's what you're supposed to say. Yeah. Part yeah. of our, our Christian culture that we're supposed to say we forgive them. And I think it's just a really bad idea. Uh, that's right. not healing. That's not healing. I, I Yeah, I don't think just saying I forgive you is 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 really anything but just words coming out right like I yes. think you know I, I I mean for me and I talk about this a lot uh, about my own personal healing with you know dealing with my father uh, it was actually during an MDMA assisted therapy session where I 
I actually saw my father's, his childhood and his abuse. Oh, and I was able to just be for him. Exactly. I, I, I didn't forgive what he did, no, but I understood. Yes. <laughs> compassion is not the same thing as forgiveness. <laughs> it's not. It's not. So my, my shtick on forgiveness briefly is just that our job is to take back all of our power from this person that we gave them. Mm, yeah. The anger, take back all the needing for them to, to offer an apology or for a need for them to do anything in particular, because your job is to take care of you. Not you can't control them. Right. Their job is to offer an apology and make amends. And so if you quote unquote, forgive them, you're depriving them of the opportunity of doing their heat. Mm. Wow. Letting well them the hook. And that's not okay. They have to go through their healing. Otherwise, they're not going to get the benefit of this experience. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I have a whole chapter on this. It pisses off people to no end. Did you understand what I'm talking about? No, I do. I do. So many of them don't. And particularly religious, deeply religious people. It just pushes all these buttons. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I think I think the forgiveness has to be for you. It has to be for you. And I, you know, I had to forgive myself for being so angry. I didn't understand. I didn't understand. I thought everything it was something that was happening to me. He did this to hurt me. And it took a lot for me to realize that no, it's he had his own problems. Yeah, you were an object in his fantasy, but it wasn't about you. <laughs> it wasn't about me. It wasn't about me. Yep. And that, and that... Yes. <laughs> oh. And then self-love, just another example. We use self-love as this coat to protect ourselves from other people. And, hmm. and what it does, it creates a boundary between you and them. So I believe the real task is self-acceptance. Self-acceptance. I like that. I know I, I, I say self-love a lot. I, self, I say self-love a lot. But, but they're different meanings. Self-love is like, and so, yeah, I think, yeah, I don't, I, I think it gets used as this, this coat to protect yourself from other people. And I think that just creates a boundary between you and other people that's not particularly helpful. But love happens at the contact boundary. It doesn't mm -hmm. stop about merging. And, and if and if you accept yourself, you're going to be a lot more available into the world as opposed That's to right. needing people. And love, I think, is something you give to others and others give you. Mm -hmm. So why are you trying to stay in this loop and close them out of, of deflecting love actually coming in? <laughs> you're so mm -hmm. busy loving yourself, then how can they possibly get through that? But if you mm -hmm. accept you, that makes you available to be present in the moment because there isn't anything going on. Mm, that's very fascinating. Yeah, so gives you the acceptance. Why the book is is controversial for some people. <laughs> so I go after all this stuff, and so and well, everybody one, needs to check out the book. There's one chapter called the Victim Identity Disorder that melted down three different editors because they recognized themselves. In it. Oh wow! <laughs> it's like uh, melting. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, one of them actually called me. Two of them just disappeared because it was so upsetting to them. But the, the one called me and said, help. And I said, do this. He said, you're kidding. I said, no, do what I told you. But he did it. And he says, oh, that worked. <laughs> oh, that worked. 
<laughs> there you go. That that oh, that's when you know it's a good book. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's challenging. It's a really challenging book because it's really about taking a it's a walk through your life and taking a look at yourself and in a really deep way. Uh, and so, uh, and I wrote it to heal, to help people heal, and to give them a way of of, of looking at themselves in a very different way. So. That's what's called facing the truth of your life. It's available in audio and ebook and in, uh, in paperback. So, wow. Well, thank you so much. You know, doing the challenging work, facing facing your life. I, I think that's where the real growth is. It is. <laughs> we went to everybody else. We didn't have to deal with our stuff. We're out there busy fixing everybody else. But no, the real fix is here. Right. Right. Can you imagine if each of us all fixed our own shit? <laughs> what a different world this would be. <laughs> it would be. It really would be. It's, 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 we, we have, there's so much power within us. So, but I do appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom. And I'm really excited about your book. I'm gonna well, check thank it out. You. And I, I encourage everyone else to. Um, that was, Merle Yost, psychotherapist and author of Facing the Truth of Your Life. More For more information on Merle and how to purchase his book, you can go ahead and check out the show notes. January's issue of Authentic Insider is out. Check out Authentic Insider at traumasurvivorthriver.com. That's traumasurvivorthriver.com, as well as past episodes of a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to my email list to get Authentic Insider Magazine in your inbox monthly. We will be back when I speak with neurosequential specialist Martin Sims about the important roles youth sports coaches can play in recognizing trauma in children. You've been listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. I'm Lori Lee Benstock. Thank you for being a part of the conversation. Take care. Thank you.